0: Assurance of Pardon is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, the most advanced Bible study tool for both ministers and laypeople. Available on iOS and Android for phones and tablets, as well as on your Windows or Mac computer or laptop. Get the most of your time in the Scriptures with Logos Bible Software. For more information and 15% off your next Logos package plus five free eBooks, visit AssuranceofPardon.com/Logos. Now on with the show. Hey guys, Gage here with Assurance of Pardon. Throughout our Hermeneutics 101 series, we've sought to give our listeners basic tools to help you read your Bible better. This week, we thought we would give you something different and share one of Scott's most recent sermons at Hope Church Hot Springs. In this sermon, Scott introduces the book of Genesis. Be sure and listen for the basic points of hermeneutics that we've been discussing each episode, and we hope that this message serves you well. God bless. Starting a new series this morning in the book of Genesis. Um, So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Genesis chapter 1. It should be easy to find. It's the first book. So the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of the Bible, starting in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over. Over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. Yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. And the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening And there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens so that God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening Every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. But God blessed, the, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this origin story of your world, this origin story of the heavens and the earth and everything that you have made out of nothing. Father, we are all very familiar with this story as we've heard it in church growing up, as we've seen it in Sunday school lessons, as, as it's entered even our cultural imagination, uh, and, and people even who are outside of the church have heard this story or pieces of it, Father. But I, I I worry that in our familiarity, we have grown comfortable with this, thinking that we understand all that there is to understand there. So Father, would you attend to your word this morning and humble us from it? Show us our finitude here in this passage. Humble us from your word this morning. Help us to understand it. Grant by your spirit that we may see your goodness and your kindness to us, even here in this story of creation. That we would see that we are creatures and that you are our creator. And Father, would you help us to see how even this passage points to your crucified, resurrected, ascended, and interceding Son. Show us that this morning from your Word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we begin a ser- series in the book of Genesis, as I said, and I'm, I'm excited about studying this book together as a church. There's so much in this book for us to, to mine And my prayer is that as we read this book, we'll come away with not just a better understanding of this book, but that we will walk away with a better understanding of the Bible as a whole through our understanding of Genesis. So much of what we understand as Christians has its root in the book of Genesis. So a shallow understanding of Genesis and a lack of appreciation for the book of Genesis will necessarily lead to a shallow understanding and appreciation of the rest of Scripture. So strengthening our understanding of the book of Genesis will inevitably strengthen our understanding of the whole Bible, of our fallen world, of our good creator, of his plan of redemption, our struggles with sin, and of his promise to make all things new. And because our understanding of the book of Genesis is going to affect our understanding of the rest of Scripture, as we study this book, we're going to read it in light of the New Testament. Now, that may sound like a backwards way to do it, but that's precisely how we as New Testament Christians should read our Bible. We should read it backwards. In other words, we're going to let the New Testament tell us what Genesis is about. We're going to let that The New Testament inform our reading. In that sense, we've got a better vantage point of understanding Genesis than the original hearers had. Because we've seen how this story plays out. You see, we can't do it any other way, if you think about it. We cannot put what we know already about the rest of Scripture on the shelf And pretend like we don't know it as we come to Genesis. Have you ever watched a movie that was a really good story and it had a really great plot twist at the ending? Now what happens when you try to go back and watch that movie a second time or a third time? You can't watch it the way you watched it the first time. Every detail that you come across now has new meaning to you as you read it the second time or the third time because you know how the story is going to play out. And so you notice things that you did not notice on your first viewing. And that is exactly what I pray will happen with Genesis. As we let what we know of the person and work of Christ inform how we read Genesis. Similarly, the book of Genesis, in all of its beauty of creation and of all of its tragedy of sin, it has all of those loose ends and plot points that tie together perfectly in the New Testament, in the person and work of Christ. So each week as we unpack Genesis, we're going to consider that uh, how it points to Christ. You'll, you'll recall on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus meets these two Frustrated disciples who don't know what to make of the Christ, of the crucifixion, of the empty tomb. He says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, Moses wrote Genesis. So you can take that to mean beginning with Genesis. And the rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this morning, we're going to see how is Genesis chapter 1 about the person and work of Christ. How is this passage about the crucifixion? How's this passage about the resurrection? How's this passage about the incarnation? How's this passage about Christmas? And how's it about Easter? Easter. This morning, I've chosen a rather large chunk of text, and rather than sifting through it ber- verse by verse, we're going to draw out a few ways in which the New Testament helps us better understand the creation account. So, as we consider this text together this morning, we're going to focus on that our Creator is a triune God and how we see that in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at the length of the days of creation and, if that matters, the hierarchy of creation. We're going to look at what it means to be fruitful and multiply and what it means to rest. So um, let's consider the fact that our Creator is a triune God. Where is the Trinity in the Bible? Have you ever been asked that by somebody who doesn't understand Christianity or is struggling to understand the Bible or is antagonistic to the claims of Christianity? They will say to you, as sort of a gotcha question, where's the Trinity in the Bible? Your critical friend is right. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's not in the Greek, it's not in the Hebrew, and it's not in the English, it's not in there. Uh, It's not taught in the explicit way that the resurrection is taught or that the birth of Christ is taught. However, the fact that God is three in one, the fact that God is triune is throughout the Bible, and it begins with the very first verses of the Bible. You see, there's only one God. We know that from Deuteronomy 4, 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But before we're told that, we're told in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that word for God in Genesis is the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim is a plural noun. So start to scratch your head about that. And if that isn't curious enough, when we get to chapter 1 verse 26, it says, then this God who is one, but is plural, says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Wait, what? There's one God, but God is having this conversation with himself. Let us make God in our own image. Who is this one God talking to? Well, when we get to the Gospel of John, John opens his biography of Jesus by restating the Genesis account in Christological terms. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. I would say keep your finger in Genesis 1 so you don't lose your place. But if Genesis 1 is something you lose, lose, your, place, lose your place on, then you, I don't know what to tell you. It's easy to find your way back to it. John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Notice what John is doing here. He is summarizing for you Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2. 34 verses boiled down to three verses in the first part of John. That's quite a summary. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's quite a summary. And you'd expect that in a summary that short, it would omit a lot of important information. But in verse 14 of John chapter 1, the truth is John inserts some information in his creation retelling that actually helps our understanding. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word that was with God, that Word that was God, that Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. That's, that's Bethlehem. That's the incarnation. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, who's we? John and Jesus' other disciples. We have seen his glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. In other words, John says, Jesus is there in creation. Do you get that? In the beginning was the word, capital W, notice that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So here's God, and here's this Word. Oh, and also that Word that's with God, that Word is God. You see how we begin to come up with... We do need a Word to describe what John is talking about. About Elohim being a plural noun. About God being one. About God saying, let us make man in our own image. And this Word that was with God and that was God, He, this Word is now being called a He, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This word that is with God and was God made everything. Or you might say, nothing God made, he made apart from the word's doing. Are you tracking with me? And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now let's take that understanding back to Genesis 1 and see it with new eyes. John says, Jesus made the world. You get that? There's not, everything, there's not anything that we see as we look around that we can say, Jesus didn't make that. There's not anything made that was made apart from Jesus. So look there in the creation account again. But again, what, what do we do? We're trying to let the New Testament inform how we read the book of Genesis. What do we see in Genesis chapter 1 in this creation account? What we see is we see God, we see God's word, and we see God's spirit. And we know that that word that created the world is Jesus himself. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. But what about this spirit of God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God, God's spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. Look there at what the Spirit of God is doing in creation. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. That word hovering is intended to make you think of a bird. The Hebrew word is rahoth; It means to flutter like a bird. Some translations say the Spirit of God was fluttering over the waters. In Tim Keller's book on the Gospel of Mark, he writes, in the sacred writings of Judaism, there is only one place where the Spirit of God is likened to a dove. And that is in the Targums, the Aramaic translation of the scriptures that the Jews in Mark's time and in, in Jesus' time read. And in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it says that the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew were uh, like a dove. The Hebrew word flutter here means flutter. The Spirit of God fluttered over the face of the waters. To capture this vivid image, the rabbis translated the passage for the Targums like this. And the earth was without form and empty and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. Now, with an understanding of that imagery that Moses uses, Moses wrote Genesis, Moses uses in Genesis 1 of the entire Trinity active in creation. Do you see that? You have God the Father speaking. You have God's Word creating what the Father commands. And you have God's Spirit hovering over the waters. I want us now to go to the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Mark writes, If you want, you can go there if you want to, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, here at Jesus' baptism... You see all three persons of the Trinity active and involved. You see the Father who is the voice speaking and saying, It is good. Looking at Jesus and saying, That's good. You have the Son who is the Word made flesh, who created the world. And you have the Spirit coming down from heaven as a dove. Mark is intentionally pointing us back to the creation story. Do you see how John opens his gospel by restating the story of creation by saying, by the way, you know that story from Genesis chapter 1 that you all know really, really well? Well, that God that created everything, that God is Jesus. And then Mark begins his gospel with Jesus' baptism and says, remember the Father and the Son and the Spirit hovering over the waters in creation? Well, let's look at what happened when Jesus was baptized. Mark is using this short account of Jesus being baptized to link the act of creation with the the work of redemption, with the, the Christ who's making all things new. Just as the original creation of the universe was a project of the triune God, so the redemption of that universe, the rescue from sin, and the renewal of all things that is now beginning with God's intervention into human history as He arrives as the King is also an action of the triune God. Beloved, we cannot fully understand Christ, his incarnation, and his work of redemption if we fail to understand his role in creation. Well, let's consider the days of creation. Were they six literal 24-hour days? I mean, it certainly sounds like it. You have that sort of 24-hour day language, there's morning and evening the first day, there's morning and evening the second day, and so on and so on. The Hebrew word there uh, that Genesis uses for day is the word yom, and it has a, a lexical range. Sometimes it means a 24-hour period, the way that we would mean if you said Tuesday or today. And sometimes it means a, a long period of time, such as when you might say, back in my day, we didn't have cell phones and the Internet if you said that, what day are you talking about? You're talking about back in your day. You're talking about a period of time. So what? which was it? Were they six literal 24-hour days or were they long periods of time? Well, I'm not certain that it's necessary that we plant our flag uh, on the length of those days. There are, uh, uh, there are Jesus-loving scholars of the Old Testament who believe in the literal Bible, who believe in a literal Christ and a literal Garden of Eden and a literal first Adam and Eve who are the literal image bearers who sinned, and they believe in a talking snake and all of the things that we would hold. There are those who believe that that's a 24-hour period and there are those who believe that it's a long period of time. Moses' intent on writing Genesis 1 and 2 is to show us that one God made everything. That's the first thing. Moses shows us here that God made everything in a purposeful and intentional manner. That one God made everything in a personal and intentional manner and he did it for his own glory and that he pronounced it good. That's one of the takeaways we should take from Genesis chapter 1. And that by itself is radical no matter what age you're in. The idea that one God created everything on purpose defies the scientific modern notion that creation is just this unguided series of chemical reactions. The modern notion that through a prehistoric lightning strike struck some primordial ooze and created single-cell organisms that eventually became multi-celled organisms that eventually became a fish, that eventually became a, a lizard, that eventually became a monkey, and then became your grandpa. Genesis 1 defies that modern notion, or as Frank Turek calls that view, from the goo to you via the zoo. Here's the goo, here's me, and I took a trip through all the other animals in the zoo to get to where I am now. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 does defy that modern notion. That it did not happen through random fits and starts, unguided and unplanned. Genesis defies that notion because it says that God on purpose made everything. He made it instantaneously and he made those kinds of animals at the same time. So the Genesis account defies the modern notion. And on the other end of the spectrum, Genesis defies the pre-modern assertion that what we see in creation is the result of a host of gods or gods battling or gods mating. Other cultures that would have believed, and when Moses wrote this, that would have believed that the moon God made the moon, and the sun God made the sun, and the water God made the water. But Genesis defies that notion by saying that one God on purpose made the heavens and the earth, and he made you and I in his own image. That's the takeaway we should get. And if you want to get into the weeds of the days of creation, that's perfectly fine. But I think we're missing the point that Moses is trying to communicate. I don't believe Moses is trying to communicate an eighth grade science textbook. I think he's trying to communicate that one God made everything on purpose. Well, let's look at the hierarchy of creation. Consider the orderliness with which God shows in how he creates. You notice how orderly it was as he goes through that each day. And there's a clear framework at play in the days of creation. In days 1, 2, and 3, we see God creating realms or habitations for his creatures. And in days 4, 5, and 6, we see God creating what will inhabit those realms. If you took a piece of paper and you draw a line, and on top of the line you went one, two, three, and under the line you did four, five, six, you'll see that one correlates to four, and two correlates to five, and three correlates to six. Let me explain. Day one is light and dark, day two is sky and water, day three is land. So day four corresponds to day one sun, moon, and stars, in other words, the things that will inhabit or govern the things that were made on day one. The realms of light and dark. Day five corresponds to day two. In other words, what's day two? Sky and water. Well, What lives in the sky and the water? Birds and fish. So day five is birds and fish. And when we get to day six, is the creation of what will govern and inhabit what was made in day three. Well, What's day three? Day three is land. And What's day six? Animals and people. There's an obvious hierarchy there and a framework with, what the, with which God created these things. And God has placed man and woman, as you will see, at the pinnacle of his creation and put all of creation in subjection under him. Psalm 8 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? You see, brothers and sisters, humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation, and therefore we are to worship what is above us, uh, that is God himself, rather than what is below us. In our sin, rather than looking upward and worshiping God as our creator, in our sin, we look downward and worship created things. Paul spells this out in Romans chapter 1 when he says, For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, right, that which is above us, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They began to worship, created things rather than created. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. To worship anything other than our triune creator is idolatry because we are worshiping a created thing rather than the creator. We're looking downward at other created things in the creation hierarchy rather than directing our worship and affections upward to our creator. You see, understanding Genesis 1 helps us understand God's call to worship Him alone rather than created things. What does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? So God created man and woman in His own image. And next week we're going to talk more about what it means to be the only part of creation that is made in God's image. Uh, but let's consider what it means for God to tell Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Theologians call this the dominion mandate. God gives Adam and Eve the command to fill the earth, to bring God's rule and authority to bear on every aspect of God's creation. To have dominion over the earth doesn't mean to worship the earth. Rather, it means to steward it, to care for it like a gardener cares for a garden and to recognize that God has called us to care for it for our good and for his glory. They were called to multiply in number. I won't go into how you do that. They were called to multiply in number and to teach their children about God as our creator and to lovingly expand the boundaries of the Garden of Eden to fill the whole earth. Well, how well did Adam and Eve do at obeying the dominion mandate? Spoiler alert, not well. We know that they sinned and cast all of creation into sin as through their sin death entered the world. Now with sin, the dominion mandate didn't go away. It just got frustrated by our sin. But by virtue of Christ's victory of death, victory over death and sin, His new creation, the church, is given a new dominion mandate. In Matthew 28, after Jesus triumphs over the death that God's first image bearers brought into the world, Jesus turns to his tiny fledgling church and says to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our dominion mandate. Jesus has all authority. Where? In heaven and on earth, right? In all of creation. Go, therefore, he's giving us authority to go in his name because we're his image bearers. Make disciples. What does that mean to the church? For the church to make disciples is the church being fruitful and multiplying. Through Christian moms and dads having Christian babies and sharing the gospel with them and through the church's evangelism efforts as we are fruitful and multiply and we gather more and more people into God's kingdom. Teach all of those disciples to recognize me as their creator and sustainer. And just as I was present with Adam and Eve in the garden, church, I'm now present with you, how? In word and in sacrament. I'm present in my preached word and I'm present with you in the waters of baptism. And also we know in the Lord's Supper. Fill the earth with disciples, expand the boundaries of the garden that is the church to cover the whole earth. Just as he gave Adam and Eve the ability to be fruitful and multiply, he's given the church that ability as well. In Acts chapter 1, he says it again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and where else? To the ends of the earth. We cannot appreciate the Great Commission fully if we, see, if we fail to see how it is our newer and better dominion mandate. And last but not least, let's consider what it means to rest. In all the talk about creation, in all the talk about creationism, much is said about these six days of creation, but little is said about the seventh day on which God rested. It's right there at the beginning of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work uh, that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I want you to notice something about the seventh day. You know, there's a poetic pattern you already notice. In the book of Genesis, there's a poetic pattern to these first six days of creation. And each of those days, Moses, as he describes what happened on that day, he finishes it by saying, and there was morning and evening the first day. And there was morning and evening the second day. It doesn't say that. It says that about the first day and the second day and the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day. But it, it it doesn't say that about the seventh day. The seventh day doesn't have a morning and evening. It's just the seventh day. Why is that? The reason that the seventh day has no defined beginning and end is because it is a day that has no end. Why do I say that? Because God's Sabbath rest is a rest that you and I are now called to enter into. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4 when he says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters into God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. You see, brothers and sisters, Christ calls you and I to rest from our ceaseless attempts to earn our salvation with our own merits. He calls us to stop our soul-crushing campaigns to make ourselves measure up. We cannot do it. It is a fool's errand. We cannot work hard enough to merit God's favor. We cannot earn His forgiveness. We cannot appease His wrath by our efforts to try a little bit harder and be a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. Rather, we, his new creation, the church, enter into his rest when we lay down our attempts to find our salvation and significance in the things that he has created rather than in the creator. You see, on the cross, Christ bore the punishment that our idolatry, worshiping the creation, that our idolatry and our efforts to bring glory to ourselves deserve. On the cross, the creator of trees was hung on one. The creator of life was killed by his creation and the light of the world died on Calvary and the sun was darkened. The earth quaked, the rocks that he'd made broken half and the death that we earned died so that he who made heaven and earth could make all things new. So trust him, not just as your creator, but as your redeemer. And in doing so, we enter into his Sabbath rest. As he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so much, so much uh, uh, gold to be mined in the pages of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we could spend all day, every day, From here until you return and never unearth all the beauty and gospel truth that's in these pages. But Father, I pray that you would take what we have discussed this morning, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that you'd write your eternal truths on the fleshy tablets of our hearts, that we would be humbled, that we would recognize you as our creator and as our redeemer, that you'd prepare our hearts to come to your table. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.